Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Well, in case you were here last week and noticed I was walking a little funny, staff thought I ought to explain to you that uh, July 4th I had a little injury in my garage. I was... I was doing pull-ups, and I have a little stool that I step on to get up there and forgot it was there when I jumped down. I tore the ligaments of my ankles, and I tore my MCL. So I can't stand up for very long, I learned last week, especially in the shoes that I was wearing last week, trying to be, you know, cute. So I have to adjust now for that, and so... uh, just thought you ought to know in case over lunch you discuss the potential that I may have had a rash of some sort that caused the weird walking. <laughs> You'd never believe what gets discussed about me at lunch. <laughs> you notice we have a new logo uh, for Mark. That's, uh, well, just be honest, it's to trick you into thinking we're in a new fresh series. You feel renewed? (laughs) Well, of course, this text is about the strongest thing, maybe the clearest thing, the only thing Jesus really says, uh, at least we think, politically. You know, it has the the political overtones that it does. But the truth is, uh, Jesus is far more political than you realize. And it's interesting to see it. In fact, we're looking at the last week of his life, chapters 11 through uh, 16. They're very political. I mean, he will go to a cross, and Rome's going to kill him. And there's a lot of political dynamics going on in there. And we're going to see the politics of Jesus in this text. When you consider at the beginning of his ministry... This is what he says. This is how he announces his ministry. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. You better believe that to the heroes of Jesus' day, that had political overtones. I want you to hear how one of my favorite writers uh, translates this. Because it's just... I just love it. He says this. What is Jesus really offering? Because Jesus is saying the kingdom's here because I'm here. If I'm here and I'm the king, then the kingdom's here. My presence, my power is active right now because I'm here. So Jesus' offer here is to every human being, stop everything you're doing. Rethink everything you know about reality. Renew your plans for living and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. Isn't that powerful? Because that's really what's being offered. And it is radically different than anything going on in that day. And I will tell you, Jesus aroused all of the political parties of his day. He had all of their attention. Now, all of his followers are to seek the kingdom first. You and I, every day, struggle with what that means. And I will tell you, a great theme this year for your life ought to be seek the kingdom of God first and figuring out what that means for you because it's overwhelming to think about. But you can't follow him. You can't enter this new reign, if you will, the rule of God, unless you understand what that means. Let me tell you how Israel understood it. Because you won't understand this passage if you don't. Israel would have understood the prophecies about the Messiah coming to be political in nature. He would be a king. He would have military power. He would fight for justice. That's what they were expecting. And they expected him to literally set up a kingdom now. Rescue them from those who dominated them. In every way. Politically included. Maybe emphasized. Israel 
craved this from the Messiah. Now, when you and I think of the kingdom and we start to seek it, you and I are seeking something different than Israel did. We're seeking God ruling in our hearts and we make it sort of a spiritual dynamic and partly true, although it has other implications as well, real live implications. Hopefully we'll try to see. But Israel thought, okay, well, just tell us when. That was Israel's mind. And so the theological groups and the political groups all have their eyes on Jesus since the first time he said that word. Oh, you're going to rule? Well, you need to know how they thought of rule in that day. Well, let's see it. Now, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a Monday. That begins the last third of Mark's book. It only covers a week of his life. We're on Wednesday now. He's already cleansed the temple. He's already been approached and questioned about his authority. Within two days, Rome will kill him. Sometime in the next six to eight months, we'll see what that looks like. (laughs) Now, if Jesus is the king, he is by virtue of that, in Israel's mind, a revolutionary. He most definitely has to be, because no Messiah would tolerate the system of government that was presently in power. No Messiah would. No one would be happy with Rome's way of doing society. It was all out of whack. And so he would have to be a revolutionary of some sort when he makes this statement. Otherwise, the whole prophetic plan would have just would have meant nothing. And more than once in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen people try to rally Jesus into, especially the feeding of the 5,000 was one of them, where they, and then with the pigs, remember? When, he, when the demons are going to the pigs. Two occasions at least where they try to fan that, that political flame and say, rise to power now and take this thing over. I mean, you got a good welfare program going and you got a, you got drowning pigs. This is the moment. And Jesus doesn't fall for it. So they're trying. And then, you know, his ride into Jerusalem would have been the best shot. I mean, because this is the moment where you ride into Jerusalem and you just demonstrate your authority and power. And it looked like it was all getting there. The fanfare was there. You know, the palms were waving. The problem is Jesus is on a donkey. This little peaceful guy who hangs out with all the marginal people of society is not, didn't raise one political eyebrow. Really, it didn't get Rome, you know, sort of riled up at all. They didn't pay any attention to it. And pretty soon that whole thing just sort of fell apart and dissipated. It was like, okay, okay. no king here. So he lost that shot. Well, if he was a revolutionary and and he's got to be at some level. Especially in their minds. What kind was he? What kind of politician would Jesus be? What were his politics? He had everyone's attention. I mean, after he cleansed the temple, he has everyone's attention now. The leaders and the people. And the people kind of like him. Even though he's different, but the leaders don't. Reminds me of someone in politics right now. Although I wouldn't compare Jesus to him. (laughs) So the Sanhedrin, the leaders, are trying to trap him. They're trying to destroy him. They really want to kill him. That's what they really want to do. They want to kill him. And remember, the Sanhedrin are the 70 plus 1. The 70 is made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees two theological groups, and then the scribes who sort of interpret Scripture, and then plus one, the chief priest. That's your 71 people who who run Israel. 
Okay? And they got to trap him. And what we're going to see right now is three traps they're going to set for Jesus. Three questions. The Pharisees will give the first one. Sadducees will give another one. And then the scribes will do the next one. That's what we're in store for. Now, they don't want to just discredit him. They want to absolutely see him hung. And especially after the blistering parable that he just gave prior to this, where he accused all of the religious leaders, all of them, of being murderers. And not only will they be murderers, but they will experience the divine judgment of God. And so at this point, when all the crowd realizes, remember, all the crowd realizes Jesus is talking about the 71. You talk about red faces. They're blistering mad. They don't want to just credit him. They want him dead. And so they can, they, they, the best way to do it is the first trap, and that's politically. Rome isn't killing Jesus for theological reasons. They will eliminate a political threat if they can prove he's one. And they have him over a barrel because he's already made some political statements. If they can just get him to come clean, they've got him. And that's what this trap's about. And I want to say two things about the trap. First, it was a simple trap, easy trap. Jesus is so vulnerable to this trap. However, his response in this trap so overwhelmingly profound that I'll just give the end of the story away for you. Everyone is utterly what? Amazed. Amazed. Well, that's Jesus for you. It's a simple trap, but a profound escape. We typically quote this as if it were just Jesus' witty way of getting out of a conundrum, getting out of, a, of a, uh, a life and death situation, as we'll see. But it's far more, far, far more than that. It's, it's just awesome. Like every text we've seen, it'll make you love him more and make you more awe, make you more in awe of who he is. And the text starts with this. They, being the Sanhedrin, the 70, 71, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him with his own words. So they're mad, blistering mad. Now you've got the Pharisees and the Herodians together. This is a sort of an awkward liaison, really. They were a very unlikely tandem in any respects. The Pharisees were the theological groups. They were concerned with God's law. The Herodians, on the other hand, were the political group. They were sympathetic to Rome's intentions and laws. They supported Herod. So these two had, they coexisted, uh, but very delicately. And the only reason they come together here is a common enemy. It's to trap Jesus politically. D.A. Carson writes, a common enemy makes strange bedfellows. Now, this trap, I said it was a simple trap. It was an easy trap to put Jesus in, but it was a deadly trap. Don't misunderstand that. That's critical to understanding the rest of this text. It was a simple trap, but it was a deadly trap. This word's only used once in the New Testament right here. And it is used of hunting and fishing. They were looking for a way to hunt him down and kill him. This was their best shot. So it's a simple trap, but it's a deadly one. Life and death stakes in this seemingly, I don't know, this doesn't seem like that big of a deal question upon first reading. I have to admit that that was my feelings. So, in order to trap him, this is what they do. And you'll see something going on in this text. Very interesting. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. 
And do not court anyone's favor, because you show no partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now stop right there. Does that sound like the Pharisees to you? You see what they're doing? They're flat, they're buttering Jesus up. They are really buttering him up. They use this word here twice. Okay? In this one here, probably idea is integrity. Uh, you don't court, or it says, we know that you are truthful. We know you're genuine, authentic, and you have integrity. So we know you wouldn't be two-faced in any way. And you don't court anyone's favor. Okay, you're not, you're not trying to win this side by what you say, or this side, the typical politician. They're saying, you're some kind of a politician, but you're different. Now, of course, it's insincere flattery. But nevertheless, they're correct about him. That's the irony in Mark that's so beautiful. See, Mark's full of irony. Amongst all the other writers, he is full of it. And it's full of irony in this text. Because what they're saying about Jesus is absolutely true. They just don't believe it. And I'll tell you this. It's the, you, you come to two conclusions when you look at Jesus. You either see him this perfect or you see him as a crazy man but you can't just take him in the middle you got to go to one of these two extremes either he is off the charts brilliant full of integrity or he's a nutcase but he can't be anything in the middle and they're basically putting in their words insincere as much as they are he says you they say you show no partiality this is a greek idiom it's actually translated, interesting, I want to say, it says, you don't look in the face of people, is how you would translate it. It's an actual literal idiom that the, that the text here, the NET, translates for you. Because it basically means you're not partial. You, look in somebody's, you won't look in somebody's face as if their face is going to tell you what you ought to say. That's not the kind of person you are. Well, let me look at your face and what you want me to say, and then I'll say it. That's not Jesus. And they know it. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. In other words, you're not changing your message for anyone. So they're buttering up, and they're buttering him up, and most of us, many of us, have received this kind of flattery before that puts pressure on you. The kind of flattery that makes you feel a little prideful. Any other person than Jesus would be really puffed up here, unable to handle this kind of pride, this pressure. And so I'm thinking, oh, yeah, Lord, you're, you're, you're in big trouble here because you're finally going to have to say what we all know you have to say if you live up to this. And your pride being so puffed up now, you're going to be forced to give yourself away. Now, this is really important, okay? Because they're insincere, but they're right about Jesus. And they're trying to smoke him out, and they're hoping their flattery does it. Their, their flattery is designed for Jesus to reveal what they know is true about him. Let me explain something to you. They know he's a revolutionary. He has to be. They cannot, listen, this is so important. They cannot fathom him being anything else but a revolutionary. He's just so subtle about the way he presents it that they can't catch him in it. So all of this is to say, you're a revolutionary. We know you're a revolutionary. It's time for you to say you're a revolutionary. And we're doing everything we can for it to finally come out of your mouth. Because they have no other category for him. No other category. That's critical. That's why the trap is simple. You can't say the things Jesus has said in, throughout his ministry. About a kingdom and about a reign and about being the Messiah. You can't do the things Jesus has done without there being some political overtones to it. And you've got to be a revolutionary. That's why the trap was simple. Everybody can see it. He just hasn't said it yet. So they bait him. And they bait him with this question right here. Here it is. 
Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They ask the question twice, should we or shouldn't we? As if to say, either we do or we don't. Which is essentially saying, either you're a revolutionary or you are not. Spit it out. No middle ground. Now, for us, we're listening to this and we can't fathom why this yes or no question carries that much weight. Why does it? Well, if you don't understand that, you'll never understand the pressure that is here. And you'll never understand the marvelous move that Jesus makes. And then you'll certainly not understand the point he makes at the end. And I learned that. I realized that this week. I had no idea what was at stake here. Looking at it was incredible. They put him in this either-or category. Revolutionary or not? Yes or no? Now, let me just say something about this. And why it was so, such a critical moment when that question came out. Okay? The tax that they're referring to is a poll tax. In fact, this is literally the word for census. Okay? It's it's, it's a a Latinism, transliterated literally from Latin. The Greek word just translated right out of Greek from Latin. And Latinism, because Mark was talking to Romans, so he's got a lot of little Latinisms in his in his writing. And so it means head tax, a poll tax. It wasn't any kind of tax. This is a specific tax. It was the poll tax. This tax was the most despised of all the ones Israel paid. And they, played, they paid plenty. And it wasn't despised because it was so much money. It was the lowest tax they paid. It was despised because of what it represented. It basically said to every Jew, this is your This is basically your tax for the privilege of living in subjection to Rome. They hated it. Every one of them had to pay it. It wasn't much. It would amount to maybe 18 cents in your life right now. Nothing. But what it represented was powerful. When this tax was instituted, 25 years ago, roughly, A.D. 6, Judas the Galilean revolted. This is the second major revolt by a Judas. One happened in the Maccabean period, the Maccabees. That's not, that's not too distant. N.T. Wright is correct, I think, when he says there's a sort of an echo chamber that you've got to hear this question in, and it starts with the Maccabean period with the first Judas who revolts about taxes. And then the second one, when this is instituted. Josephus tells us about Judas the Galilean, that when he found out, they, that when, when, when Rome decided to give this tax to everyone, he said that they were cowards, that the Jewish people were cowards if they were endure to pay the tax to Romans and would, after God, submit to moral men as their lords. For Judas... You could not pay that tax and follow God. You couldn't do either, and I'll die for it. And die he did. Him and all his followers, Rome took him down. Now, just so you know how serious this is, if you don't already get it, in AD 66, okay, roughly 30, 35 years from this moment, another revolt will happen. That stemmed back to Judas's. And that will be the revolt that brings the Romans in in AD 70 and destroys Jerusalem. And it will come over this very same issue. You better believe this issue is huge. It's life or death. Oh, it's personal. Don't you think that someone in the crowd probably lost a loved one in that revolt 25 years ago? You better believe it. Oh, this is personal. This matters. Now, you know what Judas did in this revolt? Three things. The first thing he did is we called all Israel. Hey, none of you pay that tax. The second thing he did is he cleansed the temple. He literally went into the temple and threw all the foreigners out. If you weren't Jewish, gone. 
And the third thing he did was announce God's kingdom instead of Rome's. That sounds a little bit like Jesus. You see now? You're making the connection? You see why? If they can get him, Jesus has already done two of these. He's cleansed the temple and he's announcing the kingdom of God. All he want, all they want to hear him say is tell us we shouldn't pay that tax and you will have fulfilled the third one and Rome's going to take you down. Do you see it? Do you see the political overtones associated with what Jesus does and what he's saying? You better believe there's political realities here. It is incredible. So you talk about political pressure. This is it. Say yes, and you lose the people. They'll all hate you for saying pay that tax. Hey, we've lost our lives for this issue. Say, say no, and you're going to lose Rome, and Rome's going to kill you. It's a no-win question. Jesus can't win. How is he going to defuse this? What is he going to do? Well, he does three things, and they're overwhelming. They're just absolutely, phenomenally remarkable. The first thing he does is, remember, I, I, I've tried to emphasize this as we go through Mark, and I don't want to let it go every time we see it. I want you to notice how many times you're going to see this concept in Mark. He saw, you're supposed to see, see in Mark. That's why the, the seeing the suffering servant. This third of the book is seeing the suffering servant. It's been all about seeing Jesus. The, that, that sense in Mark. Remember the half-blind guy, the blinds that he All the blind people that he heals. It's all about seeing. Remember, Mark wants you to see who Jesus really is. And he wants you to know that Jesus sees you too. You're not the only one looking. He's looking too. And he sees their hypocrisy... And he says to them, why are you testing me? He says this out loud to the crowd. That's literally standing on their tiptoes, leaning in, waiting to hear his response to this question. And watch how Jesus sort of takes the pressure off himself. Because it's all on him. All eyes, all ears. Why are you testing me? Oh, he sees their hypocrisy. So the first thing he does is unmask their hypocrisy. In other words, he says, I know you're not quite sure who I am. Or you think you know who I am, but I want you to know, I know exactly who you are. That's Jesus for you. You're getting away with nothing. He unmasks it. Now, this statement here proves the insincerity, the insincere praise that they have given Jesus about being honest is absolutely correct because Jesus looks them right in the face. Something that they said he wouldn't do. Remember, that's the Greek idiom. You don't look anyone in the face. Oh, he's looking them right in the face. And he's saying, you're hypocrites. And he asked the question, why do you test me? Because he's going to prove this point right here. You have no business asking me that question. Is that why he asked this question? Yeah. And I'm going to show you your hypocrisy. The first thing I'm going to do is unmask it. I'm going to say it out loud. You're hypocrites. And I'm going to show you why I'm not the one being tested here. You are. I'll tell you who's trapped. And it isn't me. Oh, you got to love Jesus. You got to. Don't you agree? You just got to. I love I am a man of truthfulness, as you have insincerely said. You are anything but. So that's the first thing. Second thing he does. And this is so overwhelmingly brilliant. He requests to see the denarius. Now, the denarius is how they paid the tax. It was a silver coin. I'll explain what it is in a minute. But it's a silver coin. And look what Jesus says. Here it is again. Let me what? Let me look at it. I see and I want to see. And Mark's the only one who says, by the way, let me look at it. Because that's Mark's, that's Mark's brain. He wants you to see. He wants you to know Jesus sees. 
Bring me a Daenerys. Now, this moment, okay, I have laughed all week long alone by myself in my office about this moment right here. Because the fact that he, listen, all eyes are on him. Imagine. And then he goes, give me one of those coins. And everybody has to go, oh, okay, all right. He diffuses the moment by setting them completely off guard because now they're all going, oh, well, hey, hold on a minute. Hey, you got one? I didn't bring one. Did you get one? Hey, anybody got? I don't know. I, don't, I can't get one. How long did it take to get one? I don't know. I didn't find one. Oh, you know, they would have had to lift up the thing with the thing and the thing. And everybody's going, Jesus has everybody going like this. <laughs> hey, listen, that's what happens when you get convicted, by the way. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, oh, wait a minute. Excuse me. Excuse me. That's the moment. And you're like, oh, this is so brilliant. And here's the other brilliant thing. He's going to show that they have it in there, which means what? You already pay it. You already use it. It's in your possession. You've already answered this question for yourselves. You do not need me to answer it for you. See how he's revealing their hypocrisy? He's saying you have no where to stand. Because everybody's doing it. Oh, it's just one of those great moments. That I just absolutely love. And by the way, hypocrites don't do this very easily. Like, search themselves. Oh, all eyes on you. Uh, But then there's that moment that never happens in the hypocrite's life where he goes, Oh, you know what? I guess I do that too. Has that ever happened to you when you're driving? You ever been mad at somebody for doing something in the same moment and the minutes later you did it? Do you ever feel that moment and go, I'm a horrible person? You are. I just want you to know. (laughs) Oh yeah, we all are. It happens on a weekly basis, daily, that I do what I get other people. That's it. That's the feeling. But we don't search ourselves. And Jesus has everybody searching. It's just a phenomenally funny moment. It's just, I want to see it. (laughs) Show me you. You want to see me? I want to see you. I'm looking at you. Love it. And the beautiful thing about it is he wants to see it because he's going to look right into the image of this coin. And whose is it? It's Caesar's. Now he's going to look into the face of Caesar because his face is on the coin. You told me I didn't look at anybody's face. Well, listen, I've already looked at your face. And guess what? I'm about to look at Caesar's face. And I'm going to tell you what I think about both. Be honest. Because that's who Jesus is. And so he's just... Blowing it away. Marcus says it exposes his flattery, the description of him so pious that he never gazes at facial images stamped on Roman coins. Oh, yes, he does. Let me see it. And that's the third thing Jesus does. He asks the question. Whose image is on it? Whose image is on it? And what does it say? This is a great moment. Again, it has everybody focused now here on the coin, by the way, they're carrying. They have it in their possession. It means they're caught up in the system and they pay the taxes. Proving themselves to be hypocrites. That's what Mark does here. Possessing the coin says they operate in Caesar's system and they pay the taxes, which means... And they pay it even though they despise it, which means they are in no position to question Jesus' political scruples. Overwhelmingly cool. And Jesus says, show me whose face is on it. And of course, the denarius was a silver coin. And it was, of course, mounted to about the day's wage of the lowest person getting paid in Israel at the time. It was hardly anything. Again, it wasn't the amount that was the big deal. But on those coins... Uh, Roman peddled their sort of uh, sovereignty and their ideology about reality. Remember, Caesar's a title. It's not the name of the person in charge. It was once, but his name became the title for whoever is in charge. And in this case, it's Tiberius. And Tiberius's bust from his waist up is on this coin. So you can see his face. You can see the front of him. 
And it says on there, Tiberius Caesar, August, son of the divine Augustus. And on the flip side is a woman. It's either a priestess or it's his mother. And it says high priest. Wow. You see, in the Roman government, if you ruled in that day, in fact, in any era up to that point especially, and for a long time after it, if you ruled, you were considered divine. What you said went. Even the Jews grasped whoever was in charge was sort of divine. You had divine authority. That's why they wanted Jesus to be in charge. So they understood one kind of leadership. And if you were in charge, you were divine. They call him the son of God and the high priest. Well, that sounds a whole lot like who? Jesus. You see what's at stake? Essentially, what you had when you carried that coin is a portable idol. You carried around with it everywhere you went. A portable idol. So, Jesus, either you line up with Roman ideology and all the horrible things that come with it, or you're a revolutionary. Because to them, there's no other option. And you can see the pickle Jesus is in in that regard. Yeah, Jesus, what kind of revolutionary are you? Because you're clearly one. This is, their, this is Jesus' answer to them. Jesus says to them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were utterly amazed at what he says. Now, you're, you're going to be upset at me for a second. Because I'm not going to tell you what that means until next week. Because there's something happening here I don't want us to miss because we're sitting on edge like the people in Jesus' day waiting for him to answer the question. The bulk of this text, 13, 14, 15, and 16, are all about the ill intent of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy, and how Jesus unmasks it. Before we can hear the truth of this text, we need our own hypocrisy unmasked. Because that's the brilliance of this passage. And it can't be missed. I was watching, uh, and I don't always watch this if I'm being honest with you, but I happened to watch August 6th, the debate, the Republicans, the top 10 that one Donald Trump was in, which, is he a character or what? Is he must-see television or what? <laughs> he truly is. I'm watching this. And I think Megyn Kelly's the one asking these questions, and these questions are getting asked. And every time these questions, are a couple of them, the panelists of three, asking the questions. And there was a few times when a few of the panelists uh, were asked a question, and their response, regardless of what the question was, was, and if you saw it, you know this, Americans want the truth. Did you hear that out of a couple of their mouths? That's how they started, before anything else would get said. And I listened to a few of them say that, and then I thought in my head, really? Really? I'll tell you what Americans don't want. They don't want to be lied to. But they can't handle truth. They do not want to be lied to, but they cannot handle truth. That's a hypocrite. They can't handle dishonesty, but truth slays them. And I want to say something to you before you get too upset at America, because I'm wanting you to be mad at yourself. Not America. Is everybody with me? Before you leave here, I want you really upset. I was about to say something I shouldn't have. And then you'd be upset about something else. I want you to be really upset at yourself. Because we're the same way. Re reality is so hard that when somebody gives... Hey, ask your husband how well you handle truth. Ask your wife. 
how well you handle truth. Truth at any level of life is very difficult to face. And at first, you'll deny it all the time. Truth is hard. I understand America's fight with it because I understand my fight with it. Can everybody say amen to that? You better believe it. It's hard to face. Well, that's the predicament these Pharisees are in. They are begging Jesus to be truthful. Begging him to be honest about who he is because they think they know exactly who he is. The problem is, is when he gives his answer, they can't handle it. So be careful begging for the truth because the truth is painful. So let me ask you a question as we... As Jesus so beautifully exposes their hypocrisy. And we want him, of course, today to expose ours. Whose neck are you breathing down today? Who's in your crosshairs? Who are you leaning in on tiptoes just waiting for for an answer? Your kids? America? Your spouse? Who are you leaning in on just waiting to pounce on? Because it'll reveal for you where your own hypocrisy is. Because I promise, whatever you can pounce on for anyone else, you better believe. You might be carrying that in your pocket. Who's sin? Are you relishing? Like, who sins in your world and you love it when they do? Because it makes you feel better. There he goes again. Got him. Feeling good. You whistle Dixie when someone else blows it. I find this in myself. We were on vacation in the summer, and I'll tell you something about my wife, Gail. She has an, uh, two of her senses are, I swear, hyper-sensitive. First one's hearing. I mean, if you're singing with her, I mean, how many times? Uh, you're off a little bit. You're off. She can hear anything off. There's this incredible sense of hearing. But her second one, and maybe more powerful, is her sense of smell. Well, this sets a really high standard for the five guys who live with her. (laughs) And there is constantly something she hears or especially smells that causes a problem. And so we're on vacation and we wake wake up. We're all getting dressed. We're going to spend the day out. And she smells something and all of us sort of mingling around in the kitchen getting ready to walk out the door. And she's sniffing all of us. One of you smells. And so uh, we're like, oh, no, it's not me. I can't smell anything. So all day long, I smell it again. It's in the car. It's one of you. All day. I mean, a literal day of this. And so at the end of the day, when we're getting ready for bed, Gail realizes that her shirt is what smelled. Okay? And she was at least willing to tell me, which I found such great delight in. (laughs) It was one of the best night's sleep of my vacation. (laughs) Delighting in other sin. She realized it was her all day. So that mil- you know that mildewy smell that comes out of the dryer every now and then? That's what it was. And she couldn't put a finger on it or no, whatever it was, whatever's on it. And it ended up being her. Oh, we found such a joy in that. That's us. That's us. You smell it. Remember, it's on you too. You know that little ad that says, capital one says, what's in your wallet? All right, your response to that is supposed to be none of your business, just so you know. But Jesus' business is to ask you what's in your pocket. And everybody going, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. 
You know how it is with change? Some idols are like spare change. You never really know what you have in your pocket. You ever come up to the cash register and the lady says, it's going to be 26 cents. And you go, oh, 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 oh. You don't know if you have, oh, 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 oh. Oh, and you're going to pull out because you have no idea what's in here, right? You, oh, I got it. I got 26 cents. You love it when you, have, you don't have to break a dollar. <laughs> you didn't even know you had it in there. You didn't know you had it in there. That's how some idols are. And see, hypocrites that aren't in tune with what's in their pockets, they know how to be angry and bitter at others. But they fail to take their own inventory. That's what Jesus is describing here. And I would suggest to you today that Jesus is asking every single one of us, what's in your pocket? Empty them. And how scary would that be right now? How scary would that be right now? To find out that, well, money really is it. I'm angry and bitter at somebody. Power and control, I'm a freak. Or I'm scared of everything. Or lust, greed. You know, a coin that I haven't identified in my life lately is like this commitment to comfort. Anything I can do to make my life easier is what I'm committed to the most. Makes following Jesus really hard. I want to suggest something to you because you bow your heads right now. Just bow and we're going to be done in just a second. All I want to ask you to do is as you reach it in your pocket and you're trying to figure out what it is, right now, confess it to God. Say, God, you're not going to believe what I found in my pocket. This little portable idol I didn't even recognize, I didn't even know it was there. But it's ruling me and ruining me. And I'm, I'm holding it right now. I just, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've given it the power that it has had in my life. And I want to tell you something. God will forgive you without question. But you've got to address it and see it in order for you to deal with it on a regular basis. To wake up every day and say, that thing's not going to be in my pocket today. I want to ask you to do one other thing. As you pray about it this week, tell someone else. Tell somebody you love and trust. Never going to believe what I found in my pocket this week. I'm going to tell you why. Because it becomes far more profound when someone else knows. Far easier to deal with. And you also learn what forgiveness means when somebody grabs you and says, hey, I understand. I got that one too. That's what brothers and sisters in Christ do for each other. But I'm going to tell you, that thing's going to stay in your pocket. And much of the time, you won't even know it's there if you don't tell it to God and tell it to somebody else. Father, what can I say? I have all, to, all week to see the spare change in my life. what's intolerable to you that I carry around and don't even know I have it with such arrogance and pretense and pride and hypocrisy. And I've confessed that to you. I pray our congregation would face the truth about themselves before they look at it anywhere else in this life. And that can only happen in your presence. And I pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Hillside, as we close, I just want to simply say, uh, um, in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a series 
uh, that I told you about this summer uh, on the subject of homosexuality. Uh, The series is going to be called Design. And I want to give you a couple of thoughts ahead of time. I want you to know right off the bat that this is not going to be a bash session. That's not what it's about. And I want to remind every single person in this room that it's a miracle any of us have come to Christ. It's a miracle. And every one of our testimonies ought to start with, I have to be the worst sinner you've ever known. Now, with that said, we're going to look at, I want you to see that subject amidst God's theological portrait and picture, what his design is for us. Because I think that's the only way, really, to hear it properly. And so we're going to start in Genesis. We're not going to go through every book. I don't want you to get scared. I got to get back to Mark. But we're going to start there, and we're going to show, and I'm going to show you how these are all linked, and you can't mess with any one of them. And if you do, you mess up the whole picture. They're so tightly linked. I want to show you what it looks like. And I had a man ask me, is it okay if I bring my daughter who's a lesbian? And what he meant by that was, are you going to care that she's in the room? I knew exactly what he meant. And I said, you better believe I'm going to care that he's in the room. She's in the room. And I pray that you'll feel the same way. Be able to invite someone because I want anyone to be able to hear this message. As hard as it is for some of us maybe to hear this. We are all accountable to God as our creator. Every one of us. And I'll show us that. But I also want this church to know its place in God's plan for reconciling the world to himself. And we have a part in that plan. So we're going to look at it together. And I promise it is going to challenge Every single one of us at the deepest levels. So be in prayer about it. Because I want Hillside to be a safe place for anyone to walk in those doors and hear the gospel. The same gospel that changed our lives can change anyone's. And we're going to be ready for them, and I want you to be ready for them. And I know you're going to be challenged. All I'm asking you to say is, God, help me to be ready, even though I don't feel ready. Help me to be ready. All right, will you do that? Okay.